You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. Let's take it way back for Pete though. Okay, now we're gonna take it way back. Yeah. All the way back. Uh, two. The year 2010, it's time to, let's remember some years sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza for 2010. Because Pagliacci Pizza is entering a new decade, and so are we. There you go. Uh, a brief aside to talk about our sponsor, Pagliacci Pizza, tried out the new seasonals earlier this evening. There we go. And, uh, two All very... of them? Both of them? I did. I went half wow. and half. Yeah. Uh, a very strong pair of seasonals right now that they just just got on the menu, the asparagus prosciutto and the barbecue chicken. That sounds great. So you ate asparagus. I'm okay with asparagus. Wow, this is hashtag growth for you. I've, I've eaten asparagus for a long period of time. Oh, look, you're, you're doing the ESPN Daily, you're eating asparagus. I don't even know who you are anymore. <sighs> I feel like you do. <laughs> I'm going to ask Mrs. Fantasy Genius here. Do you think asparagus is a food that Al would, would eat? No, but I feel like if I had food, blow up. <laughs> oh, wow. God, we need to get her a mic. Uh, she said, no, but I feel like he's had a food glow up recently. Have I? Huh? I, at no point would anybody describe almost anything involving you as a quote-unquote glow up. Uh, also, nobody would describe anything that way since 2017. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, no, now she's mad. Now we're having <laughs> a real insight into the, uh, the fabulous Tristan marriage. Fabulous Tristan marriage. Uh, but. Uh... <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. What else do you consider as part of his glow-up? His situation he was in the other night with his, his spam soba. Oh, when he was making spam masubi or whatever? Oh, I'm on, I a, think... cooking, I'm on a cooking glow-up for sure during the quarantine. That's no yeah. doubt about it. You're on... You eat tomatoes now? No, you don't. No, 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 still not. Yeah, no, he said he does not eat tomatoes. His glow-up is not as not as profound as you think it is. He's an extreme sub Anderson Pock levels. <laughs> Anyways, all these two great Pagliacci options for a limited time. Uh, neither of them with a traditional tomato sauce in olive oil base on the. I bet you, bet you like that, didn't you? That <laughs> they didn't have a tomato sauce. I like tomato sauce. Uh, but then barbecue sauce is the base on the barbecue chicken. So there we go. It's nice to mix it up. That sounds I great. was gonna. I would say tell you that before this, I had, I think I had settled on my go-to Pagliacci order. Really? What was that? I built my own. Okay. With traditional tomato base. Oh. Uh, Kalamata olives, uh, spicy pepperoni from Salumi. I think. Okay. Yeah. Of course. And then chicken. I went with that. I Interesting. Think that's, that is I think a that pretty fast. I feel like the the PSR, where you do the essence of sausages, salami. I feel like that's man. That ricotta is pretty hard to compete with on a Pagliacci pizza. That is a good point. 
Okay, so 2010, we talked about taking it all the way back from Pete Carroll, all the way to the time of his hiring as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. Yes, last week we talked about Jim Elmore's ill-fated one season as coach. They also that season fired GM Tim Ruskell midway through the campaign, leaving both roles open. And we're able to lure Pete Carroll away from USC with the title of Vice President of Football Operations as well as head coach. Carroll, as part of that search process, agreed to choose a GM from four finalists selected by Seahawks President Todd Lewicki and picked Packers executive and one-time Seahawks executive uh, earlier in his career, John Schneider. And here we are a decade later, that partnership still going strong. Uh, and. I, I don't. I want to say that I remember the day that Pete Carroll was hired. I don't know if I do exactly, but I do remember us being very excited about it. Whereas, like, he was the coach of the 2000s in all of college football, and like, it, th- this wasn't somebody who Pete Carroll felt like he could compete at the higher level. There are some co- like, honestly, if you tomorrow are like you put Dabo Swinney in the NFL, like he's gonna fail. You know, I just do not believe – I think there are certain coaches that are, like, perfect at being big fish in small ponds. And Pete Carroll – then maybe this is hindsight saying that because he has won a Super Bowl since then and been a successful NFL coach. But, like, he felt like somebody who was bigger than the college game in a way that some of these other coaches just do not. And the same with – I think Saban could be a successful NFL coach. He's a college coach at his core. And, like, I just think Pete Carroll connected with players – on a way that was so much deeper than the way that I think a lot of college coaches do. He's not a control guy, right? Like he, he's not the type of coach who's trying to like lock down every aspect of a player's life. He can handle NFL players. Dabo Swinney cannot handle NFL players in that same sort of way. Whereas like Pete Carroll was ready for this and waited for the right opportunity where he knew that the organization would put the kind of resources behind him to be able to completely overhaul the team and has this like history and built in fan base. Like there were a lot of good things for Pete Carroll coming into this job. On the West Coast, he had a relationship with Tim Laiwiki at that point because he was still at uh, AEG in LA, you know, not directly working with Carroll, but he was like the, the contact point between his brother Todd and Carroll. I, I think Nick Saban would be a really good NFL coach if he actually committed to it and got this kind of power over an entire organization. I think that was a big difference between when he was in Miami and you know Pete Carroll's experience in Seattle. I, I think it's different with its if it's a career college coach like Sweeney or uh, uh, who's the other guy the Dolphins hired who was from like Arkansas? Oh, Bobby Petrino. <laughs> uh, Mike Riley's ill-fated uh, Chargers run. I, I think that, but like Carroll had worked in the NFL for a long period of time, just like Nick Saban had been a defensive he, coordinator. He in the was NFL. an NFL coach who happened to be coaching in college. Is really what it felt like. I mean, it's interesting though that you know I think I would recall being excited about this as well. But I was reading uh, Danny O'Neill's piece in the Seattle Times that said the Seahawks fans were not gung ho about this. About Pete Carroll? Yeah. Because they hate winning. What I I. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there was skepticism based on his NFL career, which is seen as weirdly negative. Like, I get that he took over a team that had just gone to the Super Bowl in New England and that the team slowly declined, but he also went to the playoffs two out of three seasons in New England. It's talked about as if, like, they went 0-16 every year, the way that people talk about that time. 
his well, even his Jets tenure wasn't terrible, right? No, I mean I think they were seven and nine, maybe six and ten, and that was probably their best record in the next five years. Pete Carroll was. It, I feel like he was maybe a little bit ahead of his time with what he was doing and the earlier stints that he had in the NFL. He also is not like in it, it, it's ironic because now he's sort of evolved into an old school NFL guy in a lot of ways, but I still feel like personality wise, football wise, he's maybe the old, one of the oldest school coaches there are, but like personality wise, he's still, he connects with players. He is a player's coach in a way that I just don't know if new England and the New York jets were able to handle at that time. And it was such a perfect fit at a place like USC where I, I remember the first time that I was just like, oh shit, Pete Carroll's awesome, was there was a 60 Minutes feature on him when, you know, at some point during his USC tenure. And he was talking about, like, going into inner cities and, like, hanging. And I saw that and I was just like, holy shit, Pete Carroll's the best. You know, it was one of those things where he's always he was always sort of the Huskies' foil. But, like, we didn't hate Pete Carroll at USC. You know, this wasn't like a Jim Harbaugh type situation where we hated everything about what they represented and stood for. It was just like USC was so much better than UW that it, they weren't. We weren't playing the same sport. You know, like even when we beat USC, it wasn't like well, we finally took down Pete Carroll. It was like thank God we won a game. You know, <laughs> right? Like it felt totally different. This wasn't Chip Kelly. Uh, I suppose so. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were also very excited for Sark at that point. There was, yeah, I can't remember the Pete Carroll feature. There was a, there was a feature that followed him on one of these trips, similar to that 60 minutes profile you're talking about that, uh, really won me over, I would say, in the same point. It's interesting, Art Teal, I, I, uh, mentioned on Twitter part of his piece from during the Super Bowl year, or the, the championship year, looking back at the Carroll hiring, talking about how it came together, uh, and one of the things that was mentioned in that, that was that the a better LA was a big factor for Todd Lywicky. Really? Wow. So do bullshit press pieces, people, because they matter. <laughs> Fluff press pieces, big deal. Uh, now, now people just do podcasts. So Pete Carroll and Schneider then then turn their attention to completely turning over the roster of this five and eleven team they inherited, making two hundred and eighty four <laughs> transactions during the first year. That I they can't possibly do. There's only fifty three spots on the roster. Two hundred eighty four transactions. Uh, the first draft class for those two in Seattle yielded Russell Okung with the sixth pick, Earl Thomas with the 14th pick, as we mentioned last week, acquired from Alfonso Smith, or for Alfonso Smith from the Broncos. Golden yes. Tate in the third round, Cam Chancellor in the sixth round. That's a pretty fucking good draft class. Absolutely. When a lot of those didn't, I think Okung and Earl definitely were factors right away. I remember wanting Golden Tate to be good right away, and he just could not get on the field. He was the top pot donuts guy early on, right? And it was Before like, he, it just. Now, now he's something very different altogether. Oh, we still love Golden Tate. No, we do not love Golden Tate anymore. We do not at all love Golden Tate. Why? Because he said that Russell Wilson wasn't the best quarterback he played with? Yeah, I think he said it while wearing a red hat. Oh, did he? Yeah. Whew. 
Anyway, Cam Chancellor, such a draft pick. Fifth round, come on. Wow, Mike Williams was the leading receiver by a wide margin that season. Man, 2010. Uh... So the Seahawks beat the 49ers 31 to 6 in Carroll's debut and started 4 and 10 4 and 2 I should say before losing 7 of the next 9 games. However, that still left them in position to win the NFC West with a week 17 Sunday night sh- football showdown versus the St. Louis Rams with Charlie Whitehurst at quarterback in place of an injured uh, Matt Hasselback. He can drive any machine to its limits. He couldn't necessarily push the Seahawks offense to its limits, but they did beat the rookie Sam Bradford 16-6 to to win the division at 7-9 and host the defending Super Bowl champion Saints in the wild card round is maybe the largest underdogs ever to host a playoff game. Uh, Matt Hass came back from injury to throw four touchdowns, and Marshawn Lynch, who was one of those 284 transactions when the Seahawks traded for him in Week 5, all but sealed the win with the Beast Quake to give the Seahawks an 11-point lead with 3.22 left as I was enjoying the Husky game with the famous <laughs> Cousin Kevin. Oh, my God. I remember you describing this, right? Because didn't you say that there was just, like, a murmur through the crowd at that Husky game after this happened? So it was late enough by this point that, you know, uh, like every people could stream the game, and so every but every was at slightly different points. So people got the touchdown run. Like this pocket of fans was seeing it, and then this pocket of fans was seeing it. It was like an amazing moment. I mean, being there actually was an amazing moment too. Um, <laughs> oh, you don't say. It was. One of those plays where you're just like, oh, like, oh, he's down. And then you're like, oh, shit, he's still running. Or there's sort of like, there's such a chaos that happens when you're watching a football game. And if there's a play where it's like sort of, you can't really tell. And then all of a sudden somebody emerges where you're just like, what is going on? And then he's jumping into the end zone. And I feel like that's even part of why the crowd erupted so much, because it was this moment of just like what's happening and then all of a sudden you see him scoring or breaking free and you're just like oh my god and sort of the instant reaction of it where it wasn't like we couldn't see the whole play develop in the same way that you might like it like the Jermaine curse touchdown to go to the super bowl like you can see the whole thing and you're just like that that's going to come then we're going to blow up this is just like he's probably down and then all this stuff happened and it's craziness but then he's still up and then there's all of a sudden Marshawn Lynch is scoring and we're going to beat the Saints, who at the time, like, I mean, I think still to this day, beating the Saints is a big deal. But like the Saints were they were the team in the NFL at that point. Right. These were defending Super Bowl participants, at least, you know, the, the, the defending Super Bowl champions. So th- this was like beating the Saints really, really mattered. I mean, this was like. This is like Tennessee taking down the Patriots this year or something like that, you know? In fact, it was almost exactly like that, except Tennessee did it on the road. You say this as if the Huskies beating Oregon State 103-72, getting 14 <laughs> points off the bench in 16 minutes from Terrence Ross, seven boards, was not also something. Uh-huh. We, we talk about that game to this day. We call it the, the bench quake from Terrence Ross. <laughs> the bench quake. 
so the Seahawks then went on to, for the third consecutive playoff trip, uh, after winning at home in the wild card round, went in the division round to play in the Midwest, and uh, same result, pl- played against the Chicago Bears, fell behind 28 to nothing. And that one, before a late comeback, made the final score respectable behind two touchdowns in the final 216 while trailing 35-10. to 10. I sort of remember that comeback, but not really. I mean, it was clear that this was, and honestly, like, the foundation of the team was there, but the team, even despite, and I have to give a lot of credit to Pete for this, despite the fact that they did win a playoff game, Pete and John recognized that this was not the team. Like, this was not the team that was going to lead them to a Super Bowl, and they they recognized that it was going to be Matt Flynn eventually. Not Tavares Jackson. (laughs) Uh, Who did lead them to a Super Bowl, technically speaking. Absolutely did. But that that they were able to win a playoff game and not say, okay, we're good, right? Like, let's run it back. Because they were always competing. I mean, by the way, we should touch on here, like, for some reason, Seahawks Twitter decided on May 18th to rehash the "Is Pete Carroll a good coach?" discussion. And what happened? Yeah, I, I, what, what I don't know. It's just because of the because of the quote I t- like the quote I posted that Ben retweeted. Uh, Pete Carroll, I think it's the, fair what, to question what whether this, if, if you can bring that up. So it's from that Arteal feature I mentioned where he's talking about his time in New England. Carroll, according to one source, never got over the March 1998 loss of five-time All-Pro running back Curtis Martin there in Carroll's go. first year with the Patriots. Martin left in free agency to the division rival Jets in a six-year, $36 million deal. That was my best player, he told people then, bewildered, figuring the Pats could have found a way to keep a game-changing talent. The, I, I know we all want to just like laugh at Carroll here. Football was totally different when this happened. Like it was. It's just funny. The, you would never, ever, ever blame a coach. And you said this is 1998, right? Uh, when he left, it was yes. After the 97 season, you would never blame a coach in 1998 for being like a running back is my best player. I mean, that is we're paying a totally, lot of money for Ricky Waters. Then. It is a totally reasonable take for 1998. Like, we have to have some cultural relativism here. As, like, we could look on, look back on this 20 years later or whatever, 22 years later, and be like, ha, 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 ha. he thought that a running back was the best player. But, like, this sport, the game was played differently at the time, as it were. And also, like, the way that people valued players. You know, there were tons of running backs drafted in the top 10 and paid shit tons of money. After that, like people valued running backs. And also he went to a division rival and I think had some pretty good seasons for the Jets. I mean, look, we can debate whether Pete Carroll is the right coach at age 68 for a Seahawks team whose best player is their quarterback. Yes. But we cannot debate that Pete Carroll was the right choice for the Seahawks in 2010 and that none of the great things that have happened over the past decade happens without the starting point of hiring him and John Schneider. Yes. All right, let's talk about the Seattle Storm, who won their second WNBA championship in 2010. They added vets Svetlana Obrosomova and Lako Willingham to a healthy starting lineup, and everything clicked for the Storm after five consecutive losses in the first round of the playoffs. The 2010 Storm started 9-1, and and then after losing their second game, added a 13-game winning streak that lasted more than a month to push to 22-2. 
Uh, I remember being very nervous at this point because I was looking up all the best starts in Seattle history and noted, or like all the best single season records, that sort of thing, and noting none of those teams ever won a championship. <laughs> it was like, it's the 2001 Mariners, it's yeah. the 94 Sonics. There was a Sounders team in there in the NASL days that had started really well but not won the NASL title. Uh, so I was I was very concerned. Uh, Storm got the biggest win at the time in WNBA history by a 111-65 final over an outmatched Tulsa team in August, and then won the final three games with nothing on the line to tie the WNBA's single-season record at the time with 28 wins. Lauren Jackson was named MVP for the third time in her career, and Brian Agler was voted Coach of the Year. The Storm easily swept away L.A. for their first series win since 2004, playing the Sparks in the, third, in the first round for the third consecutive year, wow. then came from behind at Phoenix to sweep the conference finals, coming back from a 12-point deficit with 320 left on a 15-0 game-ending run, capped by Subert's three-pointer to break the tie with 2.8 seconds left. One of my all-time favorite Storm games since I was there in Phoenix for that one. Was this Lauren Jackson's best season? 2007 was her best season individually. This was like the best combination of LJ being healthy and at her peak, and then like the Storm being really good defensively with Brian Agler and Sue being very good. Like everything just worked that year. Swin Cash was healthy and playing quite well. This was an awesome team. Yeah. Lauren was awesome to watch play basketball. I feel like almost gets kind of forgotten in Storm history even in a, in a way, but like, because Sue Bird has been around for so long, but like, Lauren Jackson was, Lauren Jackson was like the Rain Man to Sue Bird's Peyton. I mean, Sue's longevity is so vague, and then she hit a lot of big shots. We're going to talk about a couple more in a second, another one in a second here. Like, I, the greatest player in Storm history has got to be Sue, but at the same time, like, Lauren is a greater player in WNBA history, and I don't know how that makes sense. Lauren Jackson was a better player for the seasons that she played than Sue Bird is. But, like, Sue Bird played for so many more seasons. That's what I'm saying. She she was the rain man to Sue Bird's Kemp, or to Sue Bird's Peyton. Like, the... the Sean Kemp, his peaks on the Sonics were higher than Gary Payton's peaks. No, like, that's not true. When they were both on the Sonics, Sean yes. Kemp was the better player. You talk about the 96 finals. Sean Kemp was better than Michael Jordan in the 96 finals. Gary Payton was a better Sonic all time, and but we love both of them. But there is a, there's a special place for players who, and, and I don't want to say that Lauren Jackson burned out, but like she didn't have the tenure that Sue Bird has had. I, don't, I mean, that... Almost no one has. I yeah, mean, exactly. Few know, players sure. have had the tenure that Subert has had, which is why it's special. But like, there's something even more special about watching a player who was probably clearly the best player in the WNBA for a period of time. I mean, I was 19 when Subert was drafted. Subert has never been the best player in the WNBA. Is that true? No, not not particularly close. She's never been particularly close to the best player. Whereas Lauren Jackson was the best player in the WNBA. Yes. You can make a case that nobody's had a better single season than Lauren's 2007. Is it the same with Brianna Stewart? That Brianna Stewart has been the best player in the WNBA? Yes. Didn't she win an MVP? It's pretty wild. I mean, I, there's just not a lot of teams. But, like, that 
Sue Bird has been able to go from having, in a similar, they play sort of similarly, to going from one, like, forward slash center who can also shoot, who's one of the best players in the WNBA, to another one in a span of, whatever, 10 years. Okay, so I want to touch on this game. We we went down there to Phoenix the night before, watched the UW football game, which we'll talk about in a minute here. Uh, and so it's the day before Labor Day, and when the Storm are down 12 with 3.20 left, I'm like, we're like all pissed off that we have to work on Labor Day and prep for game three of this series, and like then the Storm might lose, that all that sort of risk. And it was such a thrilling comeback when they came back to win this one and get to back to the finals. Uh, we came back and went out to Aussies back when Aussies was still located along Aurora, and then several Storm players showed up and hung out there because that was like Lauren's go-to spot. So, is it great? Wait, did Aussies day. move? You're talking a different place. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, not Aussies. Uh, Kangaroo and Kiwis. I was gonna say, I was, I was like, Aussies has never been on Aurora. Aussies has always been in Queen. Yeah. <laughs> Kangaroo and Kiwi moved from on Aurora to now along like Market Street and Ballard. What you meant to say was Aussies. <laughs> yeah, that, that is why I probably got it confused in my head. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. Yes. Anyways, yeah. on to the WNBA Finals. Uh, all three games in the finals were close, but the Storm won game one on a bird tie-breaking jumper with 2.6 seconds left go. where Lauren Jackson said, one of the most amazing moving screens in WNBA history, really left tackle-esque. That's all right. Re- Reggie pushed off on the shot against Jordan. Well, yeah, there's, there's a few push-offs in the, the uh, last dance uh, mm. that was on last night. You got to no, see the I other think, angle. I don't think it should have been a foul. Uh and then in game three, Atlanta missed two tying three-pointers in the final three seconds in Atlanta, allowing the Storm to sweep and become the first team to sweep through the playoffs undefeated since the WNBA Finals expanded to best of five. Wow, they swept the playoffs. This was, at this point, arguably the best team in WNBA history. Really? Who is who the, is overtaking them? Anybody? The, the 2014 Phoenix Mercury came along. They broke their record by winning 29 games in the regular season, also swept through the playoffs, and had a way better point differential in the playoffs. All right. All right. So Fine. There's Fine. Really no, no credible argument that it's the best team in WNBA history, but it's the best team in WNBA history in my heart. There we go. Just the real metric here. Mm-hmm. UW men's basketball reached the Sweet 16. Senior Quincy Poundexter emerges the team league leader during a shaky regular season that saw the Huskies start 3-5 and five in Pac-10 play before winning eight of their final ten games. But they then won the Pac-10 tournament, beating Cal 79-75 in the final in a game I do not remember. Yeah, it's, they played who and what now? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of been overshadowed by the next year's Pac-10 final, which was a little more memorable. Oh, my God. So the Huskies may have needed that one. They still, with the Pac-10 tournament title, got the 10 seed and faced Marquette in the opening round in San Jose. Pondexer beat Jimmy Butler off the dribble. A much bigger thing now than it seemed then for the tie-breaking runner with 1.7 seconds that is, left. I don't even think I realized that was Jimmy Butler until now. Who was it who took the shot that, that, that missed to end the game? It was a big player. He wasn't their biggest player. Lazar Hayward was probably their biggest player, or Darius Johnson Odom, both of whom went on to unsuccessful NBA careers. <laughs> Neither of them wow, is an all-star. Jimmy Butler. Oh, my None God. None of whom 
has been guests on A Touch More with Sue Bird and Megan Rapino, like Jimmy Butler was. Uh, this was so. This was my first ever South by Southwest. So the first ever time that I realized that the uh, first weekend of the NCAA tournament happens. Basically, I mean, I think timing might have changed of these two events, but like the the Thursday Friday of the NCAA tournament, which are some of the best sports days of the year, are exactly opposite South by Southwest. So, if, and if you're going to day parties or whatever, like you're really seeing none of it. You're just watching updates of, on your phone, and it kind of sucks. Like the the worst thing about South by Southwest is I remember there was a huge I think Texas won a big game on like a 50 foot shot. Like a, a couple years later, there was like a huge Texas win. And I remember like looking up in a hotel lobby and being like, hmm, cool. And there are all these, it's just like these things that matter so much to these people, but you're in this weird bubble of South by Southwest. Uh, but so I was there with third Pelton brother Reese, my first ever South by Southwest. And we're sitting at like a bar of all these Seattle music people watching the UW game. And it's like the rest of the people, like they quote unquote care. You know what I mean? Like, they care about what's happening, but it's like, I really care about what's happening. <laughs> and it's one of those situations where you're trying to be cool and just, like, trying to fit in, but it's like, I am going to be personally affected and emotionally affected by the outcome of this basketball game that we're watching at, like, a shitty bar. Uh, so there was that, and then I think the second one, that was the, the Marquette game was first, right? And then when they beat New Mexico, they just beat the shit out of them. I remember being in a different bar for that one because you're having to, like, find these awkward spots that are near. Most of the TVs are showing, like, I think that one you specifically had to find the game for the first round. Second round is a little bit easier. But being at, like, it's like a Texas bar or whatever. I might have even been at, like, a Texas A&M bar or something for the second round. Maybe it was a Baylor bar. I don't Whatever. The, some college in Texas that was not UT. It was like that that was who they were cheering for at that other place that we were at and just like sort of casually watching because the Huskies were winning by so much that I didn't have to stress about it. Uh, but I remember re-saying the coupon game where he was like, if this dude misses the shot, we're drinking shots for the last second shot for Marquette. And then he misses and me and Reese immediately grab shots after that of tequila or whatever. I was like, this is a fucking perfect moment. I bet my... I'm at my first South by Southwest. UW just had an upset in the NCAA tournament. Like, sign me up for that right now. It was, in fact, Lazar Hayward who missed at the buzzer. Future first That's what I'm telling you. Lazar, Lazar Hayward felt like their star at the time. Jimmy, well, we never he, heard of Jimmy I mean, Butler. No, I mean, you, Jimmy Butler had like two points in that game. Uh, Huskies beat New he Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who was on the New beat- Mexico team? I, their best player was a guy named Darrington Hobson, who was a second round pick of the Bucks and played like a half a second. Or were the they NBA. a two seed? They won a bunch of games in the Mountain West. Oh yeah, the old Gonzaga round. Hmm. They were like a not. The Huskies were, I think, favored by Ken Palm going into that game. I remember, yeah, like not being worried. Where it was one of those situations where you felt like whomever won that UW Marquette game was going to beat New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico finished 43rd in the Ken Palm rankings. What the hell? That year. Good God. I mean, they just hadn't played anybody. They, they had wins over Cal, which it was a better team than we realized, <laughs> clearly. And Texas A&M. Is this Jerome Randall's Cal team? Yeah, this is one of the Jerome Randall Cal teams. Yeah, Jerome Randall's good. 
They, I mean, this is a, they had a solid team. Patrick Christopher, Theo Robertson, now he's an NBA assistant coach, and Jorge Gutierrez, who... Oh, man, had, Gutierrez, had loved him. In the NBA. He played in the NBA? Oh, wow. I remember really liking him. Uh, so then the Huskies reached the, reached the Sweet 16 for the first time since 2006 and were overmatched in Syracuse against a West Virginia team that would reach the Final Four, losing 69-56 as their lack of size was pretty badly exposed in that one. What seed was here, or was West Virginia that year? West Virginia was the three seed. So I, I, I remember thinking at the time that this was another situation similar to the Louisville year, where they came up upon a really good underseeded team, right? Like, that was a fucking good team that they played. Yeah, it was. And they were yeah. big, too. Oh, they were the two Wait, they were the two seed. Wait, do I have all these seeds wrong? I guess the Huskies were the 11 seed? And Marquette was the 6 seed. Wow. And so... And then Maybe the separation then, isn't in the preparation for you. Uh, New Mexico was the 3 seed. This is what I get for not trusting, checking this. West Virginia was the 2, but... So it wasn't that notably underseen. Who was the big man that West Virginia had, though? Like, he, he was ended up being, like, a first-round draft pick, right? But was terrible in the NBA? Mm, they had Kevin Jones, who was a second-round pick. I swear they had some, like, kind of oaf-white guy. Uh, maybe coming off the bench, but not among their starters. Really? No. Huh. But I, I just remember this team being, like, I guess... Deshaun Butler wouldn't have been it. But, like, they, they just felt like the type of... They were... I mean, they were so number much, two in the country in offensive rebounding. Yeah, they were just, like, so much more advanced than UW. They, they just felt... Like, they weren't a huge team. You look at their heights. But it was like... They just felt like men. You know? And, and no, the, the, Huskies, the Huskies weren't there. Like, this, this West Virginia team was like... They were a grown-up team, and the Huskies just weren't. And they sort of arm's length the Huskies in that game, I feel like. They went on to beat a 35-2 and Kentucky team in the regional final. Wow. So that's a, that's a nice win for them. It featured DeMarcus Cousins, John Wall, and Eric Bledsoe. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, Dalton Pepper got us. All guys, they're starting five as all guys who are still in the NBA. DeMarcus Cousins, John Wall, Eric Bledsoe, Patrick Patterson, and Darius well, Miller. Well, DeMarcus Cousins isn't technically in the NBA anymore. That uh, is true. He's not technically in the NBA. It was like Wellington Smith and Cam Thurman knocked him out. <laughs> <laughs> no, Deshaun Butler was a good player, though. He tore his ACL in the Final Four game, and he was never quite the same. He was never going to be a good NBA player because he was probably undersized for what he did. But, like, Deshaun Butler for a college player was good. UW football returned to a bowl game for the first time in seven years, I believe. There we go. Season started with high hopes, but the Huskies went 1-2 in non-conference, losing at BYU and getting blown out 56-21 by number 8 Nebraska. After which, famously... I was, this was the burn the your window. jersey game? Oh my god. I mean, I burned my like, Jake Locker jersey, which I did not burn and still have to this day. What was your response to that, Mrs. Like, Fantasy nothing. Genius? She said, oh god. Because she was, it was, Katie didn't go to that game for whatever reason. It was you really? and me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius, and we were walking along because we parked about a million miles away that you forced us to park at. And uh, <laughs> we were walking along. And, it was like one of the, the off campus housing or whatever on like campus parkway. And 
whatever. I think technically we were off campus parkway by that point, but yes. And <laughs> out the window of some apartment was just a burner jersey, your <laughs> number ten husky jersey. Oh, it was good. We the I remember that was the first time that I really recognized how powerful the Nebraska fan base was. The garbage can game. We were no, that was, that was a couple of years earlier. We were up by Portage Bay. We had just passed Portage Bay when we uh, got. Yeah, it was around Portage Bay. Bay. But seeing the amount of like forty to seventy year old white people wearing all red who would travel to go see Nebraska, they were very comfortable wearing all red a few years later. Um, but who would travel to go see Nebraska play? was like, I remember driving around the city, and there's just like, everywhere you went, there were Nebraska fans. And it's like, they, they had this circled on their calendars as like, we're going to go to Washington for this game, beat the shit out of the Huskies, and then feel great. This is Taylor Martinez was their quarterback, is that right? Oh, this is, well, maybe, actually, I guess that might have been. But hold on, we can wait on that, because Nebraska's going to come up again. Oh, God. Believe it or not. No, that's not no God. <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, but yeah, th- this was... I, I remember just, like, <laughs> being so frustrated watching this game. Yeah, that was Taylor Martinez. You are, you are correct in that one. <clears throat> 19 carries for 137 yards. He was he unstoppable. Seven eleven for 150 yards as a pass in that one. Do you want to know Jake Locker's line in this oh, game? Oh, God. Jake Locker was 4 of 20. He was 4 of 20 for 53 yards. Is that right? Do I have that right? 71 yards. 70, the 53 oh, yards man. might have been in the holiday of all. Uh, he somehow had, like, Kobe Bryant's Game 7 of the 2010 Finals is his completion percentage in a football <laughs> game. Wow. Man, that, that game was terrible. That, that was unfair for Kobe. Kobe went 6 of 24. Uh, okay, but but I want to... Okay, what... We're not ready to talk music. Let's talk Husky football. When we talk music, I do have a Husky football story. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the Huskies then won number 32-31 at number 18 USC when for a second consecutive year, Eric Folk hit the game-winning field goal. Pretty wild. It was a different USC team, but still pretty crazy to win that one. I mean, a better quarterback because they had Matt Barkley at that point. Well, especially after getting throttled by Nebraska, it just felt like... And then the Huskies lost four of their next five, including blowout losses to number 13 Stanford by a 41-0 final. And number one Oregon, 53-16 on the road. Okay, so that Stanford game is definitely up there with... We talked about there there was the pair of Oregon State games two years in a row where it poured rain, and I think all of the Husky quarterbacks got injured. Everybody on the roster. Um, legendary, that was the, historical the legendary Stanford quarterbacks game. got injured. Like, the, there were... So many Husky quarterbacks got injured in those consecutive Oregon State games. I was drenched. 41-0 against Stanford at home. You sat in the fucking press box. This was Andrew Luck's senior year or whatever. Andrew Luck's last year at Stanford. And you sat, we showed up late because we were somewhere. It was, it was not Andrew Luck's senior year, as it turns out. Did he play another year after that? I'm pretty sure that the game we went to at Stanford was the next year. Oh my Luck god, in. kill me now. Um, <laughs> do, do you remember where we were? Did you show up late too, or was that just me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius? To the game? 
Yeah. We didn't tailgate. So. We got there. It's like super late to tailgating. Oh, no. We I were down in like weird parking, like that area in Pedalford, but the first level in that like weird section sort of like off to the side of the first level of Pedalford. And go, it, it rained harder than it has ever rained in the history of Seattle, Washington. It rained so hard. <laughs> this, is, this is not a the versus channel. Wow. It is. Do you remember this game? We sat out. It was horrible. We sat outside and I was in the press box drinking hot chocolate with marshmallows. Yeah, Mrs. Fantasy Genius is nodding. It was like, I don't think I've ever hated you more. <laughs> then you're you're just like oh I'm up here just drinking hot chocolate up in the press box and we had to watch Andrew Luck destroy you up forty one nothing in the pouring rain I think we probably left like early in the third quarter I would think so it was twenty eight nothing at halftime oh my god this this so there are three games that I consider to be the worst games that we've ever been to you don't and count this the Stanford is... game when they were winless and beat the Huskies nearly enough. When Stanford was winless and beat the Huskies? Yeah, the Richard Sherman touchdown game. I, it's more about the ex, it's the experience plus the it loss. It was, like, very cold and foggy. It was not a good experience. You're much more bothered by the cold and fog. First off, I love fog. Second off, I'm not as bothered by the cold as you are. Because if we're talking cold, I believe this game that we're going to get to. Uh, oh, yeah, we'll get to a cold game. The, the UCLA game, right? It was that was so cold. November eighteenth, five p.m. start. One of the one of the first like weekday games in UW history, if not the first, right? I think it was the first Thursday night game in UW history, is my recollection. Yes. And it was freezing cold. But that's so, not like, what we're I'm not bothered right now. by cold. I'm bothered by torrential downpour and being outside in torrential downpour. You know who else was bothered by it? Jake Locker, because he went seven of fourteen for sixty-four yards and two interceptions. Somehow, an NFL team said to themselves, let's draft that guy with a top 10 pick. Oh, boy. After these okay. games. <sighs> so that losing streak left the Huskies 3-6 and six in needing to win out to make a bowl game. That first of game was against the Bruins on a Thursday night, which I don't remember anything about the actual game. I think there were some interceptions. The defense played pretty they, well. They had some like big picks. Oh, God. I can't remember the dude's name. But I, I remember there being some big picks. You and me and Chris Smith went. Quentin Richardson. Not that Quentin Richardson. Yeah, Q Rich. Had an interception return for a touchdown. His Dowskis won that one 24-7. That was fun. Uh, with Jake Locker throwing for 68 yards. How did he have so many games with single-digit passes? Literally a top 10 pick after this year. It's Jesse Callier, 10 for 107 on that one. Oh, oh, not so bad. Free Jesse, free Jesse Callier. Okay, so the next game. Still need to win out. They go to Cal. They're trailing 13-10. to 10. It's the final play. They're fourth and one at the goal line. Sark, one of the ballsiest decisions in program history. Doesn't kick the field goal. Doesn't play for overtime. We're going to go for it. We're going to win in regulation. And calls God's play, which I believe is a uh, uh, power over left guard. It's pre-Drake God's Polk. play. This is God's play. Inspired. God's play, yes. Uh, Chris Polk scores the one-yard touchdown Polk. on the final play. I was at Mrs. Fantasy Genius's grandparents' house, and what was the place that they lived? Port Ludlow. We're like, it's sort of on TV, and I'm like freaking out as he scores his touchdown with Mrs. Fantasy Genius's like 80-plus-year-old grandparents being there. I'm like, 
I'm like, this is fourth and one. Chris Paul scores it. We're going to a bowl game, baby. It's happening. Oh, well, had to be win the whole. They had to win the Apple Cup too, and that one was also close, tied 28-28. Before, with 44 seconds left, a touchdown to Jermaine Curse. There we go. All he does is score big touchdowns. I'm kind of fired up about this Husky season, despite the fact I have like two terrible memories from this year. But like, I'm still like, actually, I have like three up there with some of my worst memories of Husky football. The Oregon, the Oregon 53 to 16 loss gone from my mind. It's just like, do you just take that off the fucking schedule playing Oregon at that time period? But like, and maybe even now, but like, there were some fun games this year. So somehow at six and six, the Huskies go to the holiday bowl. <laughs> A top-heavy Pac-12 had two teams in the BCS, Oregon, obviously, and Stanford. Uh, Oregon played in the BCS National Championship that year against Auburn. This is the Michael Dyer game? Wow. Yeah, he was down. Uh, but just five bull-eligible teams in the entire Pac-12 because of sanctions against USC after Pete Carroll left for the South. Thank you, Pete. Hashtag. One of those teams really did not play. I think it was Arizona State did not play a bowl game. So only four Pac-12 teams were wow. Pac-10 teams. It was Pac-10 back then. There were still only 10. And we wonder why bowl games. the Pac-12 can't recruit now. Why we have yeah. precisely zero good teams in the Pac-12. And one of those was the Huskies who played a 10-3 Nebraska team at 6-6 six and six in the Holiday Bowl. Wow. Having lost by five touchdowns to them in Seattle earlier in the season. And somehow they won! I... I... I really wish that I remember this game better because I, like, it's kind of crazy looking back on it that they won this game. Oh my god. The, the passing lines in this game. Taylor Martinez, oh, Taylor 7 of 9. Fucking sucked. Like, 53 yards, but he was he must have been injured at some point and replaced by Cody Green. Who went 3 of 12 for 45 yards. On the Washington side, Jake Locker, 5 of 16 for 56 yards wow. in this game. Jesse Callier threw two passes, which also, Jesse Callier threw two passes. Two passes. And had wow. about his third as many yards as Jake Walker <laughs> did passing. He had 16 yards. Jesse Callier. Uh, he was a lefty passer, too, right? That sounds right. Locker did have 13 carries for 83 yards. Chris Polk, 34 carries for 177 yards. Oh, they, they, I feel bad for Chris Polk long term because. They ran his body into the ground at UW. I don't know that he was going to be a big-time NFL player anyway, but, but yeah, even 260 still, like, carries that year, 293 the year after. Man, this this was a fun year. Okay, do we have any more sports to get to? Yeah, I mean, the Sounders won the U.S. Open Cup for a second consecutive year. They won at Portland in penalty on penalties in their first game before cruising past the LA Galaxy in Chivas USA in Tequila, and then beating Columbus 2-1 at Quest Field to lift the Open Cup trophy once again. A slow start to MLS play for the Sounders, who were 4-8-4 at midseason before catching fire in the second half with a stretch of 10 wins in 13 matches before losing their season finale. But still a disappointing playoff outcome for the Sounders, who lost 3-1 to Galaxy on aggregate in the playoffs. And this was the year <laughs> we saw them on Halloween. Numerous years we were there on Halloween. They also finished last in their group in their first CONCACAF Champions appearance. The Mariners that year became Felix Hernandez's team. They, he, Felix, King Felix won the Cy Young with a 13-12 record. Chance to save metrics is the M's again collapsed to 101 l- losses. It was a real Cortez Kentley defensive player of the year type season. 
It really was. After a promising season, and yet another trade for a left-handed ace. Oh, my God, this, this Cliff is Cliff Lee, Lee. God. He's traded again in July. They traded Cliff Lee with the intent of retreating him. Okay. No, they they thought they were going to be good. Season also saw the retirement of Ken Griffey Jr. abruptly in May, in June, I should say, is covered on the history of the Seattle Mariners that we mentioned earlier. Uh, Griffey at the time was hitting 184 with no home runs. And then after the season, really the end of an era, is Dave Niehaus, who we have not talked about nearly enough oh on this podcast, God. died of a heart attack at age 75. Wow. So... Dave Niehaus, like, never the same after him. No, I mean, the second most important person in Mariners franchise history. And I think is there there's monuments to, to both him and Ken Griffey Jr. at Safeco Field. Correct. Griffey outside the stadium at T-Mobile Park, for the record. Uh, and then Niehaus, the uh, statue, is in center field. Whew. It was kind of weird. <laughs> That Ken Griffey Jr. wouldn't be in center field. No, uh, th- those are the most two. Those are the two most important figures in Mariners history by such a wide margin that it's not even calculable. I wrote a column after that about it was the end of my childhood, even though I was already by this point pushing thirty. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my childhood to end. <laughs> that was me. Tell tell me when you want to, if you write a medium piece about it. Then maybe. <laughs> <laughs> when you stop playing Super Mario Brothers, that would hey, be the death of your child. I had a perfect score on Super Mario World, for the record. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about the Blazers? Uh, I guess. I don't really know if I remember this Blazers team, but... This was a Blazers team that was really hit hard by injuries, like many of them. Greg Oden was off to a monster start, averaging 16.7 points, 12.8 rebounds, and 3.4 blocks per 36 minutes on 60% shooting when he fractured his patella in December. Joella Presbilla went down with a patella tendon. Wow, Joel Presbilla. Zilla! The Blazers dealt for Marcus Camby at the deadline to fill their void at center and still won 50 games again, but Brandon Roy had arthroscopic knee surgery just before the playoffs. He returned in Game 4 to help the Blazers even their series with Phoenix, but they lost in 6 in the first round. Can you Control-C, Control-V, Yusuf Nurkic, and Hassan Whiteside with Joel Prisbilla and Marcus Camby? Hassan Whiteside remains healthy, thankfully. But I'm just saying, like, the the types of... It's kind of shocking how eerily similar this sounds. Uh, the Blazers, I don't know if you're aware of this, they have a history of center injuries. He goes back before those guys. <laughs> All the way back. We heard a lot of Bill Walton on The Last Dance. It's it's actually kind of disorienting how many major national TV games Bill Walton was calling. Bill Walton is the soundtrack of the NBA of my youth. I mean, I think Marv Albert is maybe more, but like... Yeah, but Bill Walton and the Snapper were there too. It's kind of incredible how Bill Walton has been sort of relegated to the Pac-12 since then, and now he's sort of like your like wacky uncle, <laughs> even on these Pac-12 games. He's always notable being there. Maybe his shtick wasn't quite as defined in the mid-90s, but like... No. No, I mean... He was a little bit more reined in. But I think that's also Walton's choice. Like, he doesn't have to travel as much. Hashtag he Walton's choice. himself. <laughs> Walton's world. <laughs> Oh my god, Walton's choice. (laughs) 
All right, should we talk about music in 2010? Well, so I wanted to mention, we're going to talk about Bumbershoot first here for music in 2010, uh, just because we talked about the Huskies. My my one memory of Bumbershoot from that year is we watched the Husky game at BYU against now part of Russell Wilson, whatever, camp, quarter, quarterback. But at the time, notable trader to us, Jake Heaps. I don't know if I'd necessarily say that. We were mad at Jake Heaps for committing to BYU over UW. Who is we here? This is a Jake. Look, here's the thing. This is Jake U. You don't not go to UW if your name is Jake. This is this is the lost Jake in UW history. And Jake Heaps committing to BYU. He, he, Jake Heaps was a top five quarterback out of high school in the country. Yeah, it was a huge deal. I it, mean, there was he played for a lot of different schools. He had plenty of chances to <laughs> you know, had plenty of chances to get him. But but the initial commitment was what mattered. And when he committed to BYU, we were I mean, mad Jacob, about it. Fun fact, Jacob Eason committed to Georgia first. Still mad about it to this day. I personally cheered for him to drop. I, uh, I, wish, I wish he would have stayed at Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I wish uh Siler Miles is still the quarterback. Um, oh. <laughs> underrated. Uh, so okay, wait. Wh- how many? He played for Kansas and he played for BYU. How many other teams did he play for? He, he also, if he finished his career as a grad transfer, he did not actually start. He only threw twelve passes. But at the U, wow, Jake Heaps. Yeah. Are you sure? I, that's what his SportsReference.com page says. I, I think you mean sure he was a grad great. assistant there. Uh, <laughs> So we watched this game. It was such a frustrating loss to BYU. And now I remember I was watching it in Phoenix before that storm game. I remember watching it and just being, we watched it at Katie's house, me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius. And then we went and met our respective parents at Bumbershoot, where Bob Dylan was playing. This was the first year. So they actually, for Bumbershoot, let me be involved in some small regard with booking the festival, because it's just a huge mistake. And... I, I was part of a like minor minor committee called the Bumber Board, where we would advise the buyer for the festival. That sounds like a name drop. I didn't even say a person. You said Bumber Board. <clears throat> you you can't name drop a a, a committee. I think you can. <laughs> anyway, so we named so so we worked with Chris Porter. Uh, <laughs> uh, to sort of like generally advise. What the artist that would be booked for Bumbershoot, which for me as somebody who, as you've heard, grew up going to Bumbershoot, was a very exciting proposition. And then I think this was the first day that I had ever been part of this. So I had great passes or whatever. And on that first day, I was furious after a UW game. And I remember (laughs) going... and Because I think it was Saturday, Sunday, Monday, so this would have been the first day of it, of Bumbershoot. I was so upset after this UW game, and we went to go watch Bob Dylan, who played, like, I'd heard about Bob Dylan's live sets. This is the only time I've ever seen Bob Dylan live. They're sort of, like, sprawling and incoherent in a lot of ways, where you're like, what song is Bob Dylan playing right now? (laughs) You have to listen real close to get a sense of what Bob Dylan is playing, because he doesn't play through his hits in the traditional way. It's just like, it's free form. And now I can definitely respect it 
when the Huskies had just lost to Jake fucking Heaps at BYU to begin <laughs> another season, I could not respect that. And I went to Memorial Stadium and I sat in the last row of Memorial Stadium. I went to the entire top of the stadium and sat there angrily and watched Bob Dylan. <laughs> <sighs> So anyway, Jake keeps ruined Bumbershoot 2010. Thanks for committing to BYU. It's kind of funny seeing him on, I don't know if you watch the Russell Wilson Instagram videos, but it's like, it's always, Jake keeps is always just there. <laughs> and it's like, that's the guy who ruined my Bumbershoot 2010. Cool. Oh, like the training videos that he's posting? Yeah, like him with Baby Future or whatever, or him training. Huh. Jake keeps, Jake keeps is always there. I think they're in a quarantine pod. Uh, Outside of that, I feel like 2010 musically was like there were a couple of very, very massive releases that will last forever. I mean, we had in 2010 talked about Kanye a lot and remember some years, but I mean, there's a lot to remember about Kanye. Th- this is maybe not. I don't know if this is my favorite Kanye album, but it's unequivocally the best Kanye album. And Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is like, I mean, you know, we've heard podcasts about it. We've heard people like Kanye in Hawaii with all these people there is like Jordan's dream team tapes. You know, like we hear about all of these amazing rappers being in this one place, like waking up and like working out, playing basketball, like eating right, all hanging out in this compound in Hawaii, doing like basically making one of the most sprawling records ever. And this is the last time for me where, I guess for anybody, (laughs) where Kanye was really, 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 really trying. And it felt like Kanye had something to prove on Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy for this one moment. And it's like, sometimes reeking of trying is a good thing. And by the time he got to Yeezus, where it's like, I still think Yeezus is a classic album in every way, but it's different. Like, Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, every single second of it is so perfectly crafted, and it's so musical in what he's doing. Is the Yuzi is the Tommy monologue perfect? Yes. <laughs> it is perfect. Also, the peak of indie rock, because again, you've got, you've got Justin Vernon hanging out with, like, Pusha T and Kanye and Rick Ross or whatever in Hawaii. Come on. Like, indie rock has never been better than that moment. Uh, but just beginning to end, every single second of it, just musically, was so crafted. Lyrically, musically, everything about it. It was like, I remember I avoided the singles before this. There was, um, oh my god. The, oh, hey, uh, Power, or whatever that song is called. Power is, yes. I remember that single coming out. But I tried to avoid the singles from it because I was like, I want to listen to this as an album because I was a nerd. And I I remember the first time hearing, like, I was driving down from my apartment in Renton hearing Dark Fantasy. And it was just like one of those moments where you hear something and you have so much joy where you're just like, okay, I'm like, and then it goes into Gorgeous and the Raekwon verse on Gorgeous is like, really underrated as far as greatest rap verses ever. When when fucking Raekwon comes in, you're just like, holy shit. Like, Kanye just went and fucking, he upped it a notch, you know? And it reminds me of, 
like Raekwon guesting on Aquemini or something, where you're just like, this is this is a moment. But hearing that for the first time ever, or as like every single song, all the way down to like Nicki Minaj, who also released another album, her debut album came out on the same fucking day. The album that has Super Bass came out on the same day that my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy came out. It's just like, what an incredible day for music in general that that happened. But like, maybe the best record of the last 20 years came out in 2010. Also, uh, My Chemical Romance. <laughs> I, I haven't heard it, but it probably matters to some people. You probably don't even like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. No, I definitely like My Beautiful Dark Twisted <laughs> the, Fantasy. The easy talk. <laughs> I can do without that. Uh, also in 2010, we have Arcade Fire dropping probably my favorite Arcade Fire album, The Suburbs. You have no thoughts on this? Well, I, I was, you said it was your favorite Arcade Fire album, so I was giving you space to talk about it. I, I don't know, you know, I don't have a lot else to say that. I just feel like I relate to it a lot, because even though we technically weren't in the suburbs, it was a suburban existence. Okay, for the record... <laughs> nah. uh, it, it's very uh, we kind of existed right in between you know what I mean like right we, we weren't in the city certainly but we weren't in the suburbs technically either we were kind of neither um, Boulevard Park is a strange place full of multitudes to me the suburbs it was like I thought I was over Arcade Fire by 2010. I was not like it was not something I was listening to. And then I remember there was I think the Pitchfork top songs in 2010. And I heard. Uh, by the way, Pitchfork gave my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy a 10.0, right? Perfect score. Wow. Which uh, I think was the might have been the last one before the the uh, recent you know by my blank on the recent 10.0 they gave. Did they give a recent 10.0? I'm sorry, did did. Blonde by Frank Ocean not come out? (laughs) I just read a ringer piece about this the other day. You'd think I'd remember it. Uh, Fiona Apple. Oh, yeah, okay. But hearing Sprawl 2 on that, I I, had not listened to Suburbs. I was like, I obviously know Arcade Fire very well. I was booking the Vera Project at the time. Arcade Fire were playing Key Arena around this time period. Like, I was like, I'm not going to be working with this band, which ironically, I ended up being hired by their booking agency, I guess, four years later, so it wasn't that soon after. But, like, the hearing Sprawl 2 on the Pitchfork Top Songs of the year, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) I was like, all right, fine. I get it. I get why this is amazing. But then also hearing Suburban War in the movie Boyhood was like, when they the beginning of that where like kid is driving through the desert to go to college, boyhood kid, and suburban war is playing, and I was like, never. I feel like we talked about this on a podcast before, but like never has a more perfect album been written for a movie that would come out years later than the suburbs and boyhood, where it's it like a soundtrack to an album that the uh, movie that didn't yet exist. When I was saying to you, this was the first ever time that I went to Texas, and, like, 
going to Austin, Texas for the first time ever, you, you sort of like you're intoxicated by the desert. If you're a person who's from Seattle <laughs> and has never been anywhere near a desert before, the closest was going to Mariner's Spring Training in 1996 or whatever. Uh, I mean, first off, Eastern Washington is desert. But it's first different. Off. Like, Austin feels a type of way that fucking Richland, Washington does not, I'm afraid. Second off, I think you're intoxicated by the Lone Star. That too. But, like, you don't go to Austin for the first time ever for South by Southwest or really anything, as far as I know, and not feel like Austin is maybe the greatest place on Earth. I mean, think about your first time going to Austin, right? Like, we went to freaking Salt Lake. We're out there. You can bring your own Shinerbach or whatever into Salt Lake. You can just go casually and get the best barbecue you've ever had in your entire life. It's hot all the time. Eh, not the best barbecue I've ever had, but the best barbecue I've had ever had is a guy who moved from Austin. So, you know, it, it's close enough. The, like, Texas, we obviously, there's so many reasons to hate Texas. But Texas is kind of, especially Austin, is kind of the perfect place on Earth. And, Austin is not Texas. And so you hear, like, you hear Suburban War, and you watch Boyhood, and it's just like, ah, oh, it's impossible not to be overcome with emotion by it. <laughs> I agree. And, and really beyond that, like, when I look at 2010, I mean, we have the last LCD sound system that I'll recognize with this is happening uh, before the initial run and the band breaking up by playing 10 shows consecutively at Madison Square Garden. Uh, it really is one where, like, there are not a lot of things that stand out to me. I know you're an Expo 86 guy in the same way that you're a due process guy. I mean, first off, the memory of going to Expo 86 is yeah in and of itself so strong that uh, I love... Who else had an Expo 86 song? Was there another Expo 86 song? Jesus Christ. Someone else had a song God. titled Expo 86. White people Maybe it was Modest Mouse. Love Expo 86. Oh, it was Death Cab. Death Cab has a song called Expo 86. You all are boomers. <laughs> I've never decided I, to like that. I, I wasn't invited as, as a one-year-old to Expo 86. I think you were there. I don't know if we left you home. You just probably don't remember. All I remember is getting so stung by a bee at Bouchard Gardens or whatever that place is called. Yeah, that was that was after '86. I sure said I'm out, done with Canada forever. I love that entire album. <laughs> Another entire album I loved that I have not listened to in so many years: the Broken Bells album, the Danger Mouse James Mercer crossover. Yeah, nothing there. I've never heard it. I've literally never heard You've it. Never time. heard Broken Bells. I think I remember driving for a second and then turning it on, like the first song, and being like, maybe on Rhapsody or whatever. I would say also possibly my favorite uh, Rihanna album with Loud. For me, 2010, what the most thrilling music of the year was was a record called a mixtape. <clears throat> called Shut Up Dude by Das Racist. And I swear to God, it seems ridiculous 10 years later to be like, this was exciting music, especially from the group that had the Pizza Taco Bell song. But like, oh, oh, I love that song. I didn't realize that was on this 2010 release. Uh, it did come out earlier. 
and then Shut Up Dude as like the full mixtape came out after that. But like Leaf, who was also an exciting artist at the time, like you can't put in, you can't quantify how thrilling Das Races seemed in 2010. And like this mixtape came out, and it was like, it was like songs would just fall apart. You know, this was not professional music in any sort of way. Part of it was almost like stand-up comedy. Uh, Hari Kanabalu's brother, Ashok Kanabalu, was like the hype man for the group, you know? Like, th- there was there was something about it that felt... It was obviously extremely New York at the time, where it's like, they, they understood what they were doing, but it felt super intelligent and felt super aware of what was going on in the, like, blogosphere world of 2010, and going to, so it was like that EP came out and you're just like, this music might be awful or it might be incredible. And seeing Das Races at Chop Suey in 2010, it was the most packed show I've ever seen at Chop Suey before. There were so many fucking people in there and being in the bar, just like so many people wasted at this show. Whereas like Das Races had a cultural moment. If you would have told me in 2010 that Drake, or if you would have been like, Drake or Das Races will be the most important artist in the world 10 years later, I would have been like, Das Races easily. Yeah, I would have picked Drake. (laughs) I would have been like, Drake's a corporate sellout. He's done. Das Races is the voice of the future. That's what it felt like in 2010. There was like, literally, this music felt, and within a year, it was just like, the whole thing was done. It, It burned so hot. And it was so exciting for a second. Whereas, like, Think Me Later as the Drake debut full-length record was, it felt a little bit calculated. It felt like he, he hadn't he hadn't quite gotten to the, like, Marvin's Room level of Drake, and he hadn't quite perfected it after that. But it was like, Drake is a corporate entity that is on the rise in 2010. I suppose so. Uh, beyond that, there's there's not a lot a lot else that like. I mean, I think the jo- Janelle Monae record from that year was very exciting, and the debut of Tame Impala, which I had no idea even happened until I heard the notes from you. This was pre feels like we're only going backwards. Tame Impala, so I was years away from ever paying attention to them as a band, but like the 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 footprints were starting. It sound, you listen to the album, it just sounds like normal. T- it, it sounds like all the Tim and Paula that was to come. Does it? Because I mean, Tim and Paula just has one sound. Uh, like, it's a great I sound. I so fully disagree with that, but okay. Uh, anything else on music from 2010? I don't think so. I mean, we can look at the Capitol Block Party if you'd like, like to, but... Most people say that they don't want to. Not a big year for TV. There wasn't really any notable TV debuts. Was The Walking Dead 2010? I don't think so. Is that 2011? October 31st, 2010. Uh, And The Walking Dead... That's Halloween if you're scoring at home. Literally the same day that we went to that Sounders match, it debuted... Eating so many hot dogs while The Walking Dead was premiering. We were we were living at your house, at Katie's house. Do you remember this? No, that is not accurate. Was that the next year? 
It was the next year. It was during the lockout. Okay, so we watched The Walking Dead the next year. So we were a year late on watching it. Uh, the Walking Dead has become a horrible, horrible, horrible show that I have not watched in probably seven years. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's still on. I don't even really know. There was a moment at the very beginning of the show that it was also an extremely exciting show where it was like the, it felt like, you know, AMC was on such a, like a, a role at the time. I think Mad Men must've happened, right? There's like Mad Men, Breaking Bad, stuff like that. Whereas like, this felt like it was in line with some of the best television of all time. And ultimately it was not that. And it was more like, a, like fucking just trying to stay alive type show. But like, the first few seasons of The Walking Dead was a cultural movement for people. And it was like zombies were what we cared about. And it was like what we expected in the fall was to watch the show about zombies and be a little bit scared and a little bit excited and like think about this post-apocalyptic world uh, and what would go along with it. And I remember just having a time where I was like, this is up there with the best shows that I've watched in those first couple of seasons. I've never watched it. Well, you, have you ever seen Breaking Bad? <laughs> nope. Oh, God. Have you ever seen that? Have you seen an episode of Batman? I've seen some clips from it. I don't think about you at all. You're aware of that line? I am. <laughs> you know who... Also, that's what... That's what the money is for. That's what the money is for. God. Well, anyway, Entourage, I'm sure, was still kicking in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> Probably was. <laughs> Probably was. I'm, t- I'm telling you that Das Racist and The Walking Dead, if you want to talk about the real experience of being in these places at the time, Das Racist and The Walking Dead were exciting in 2010. And a decade later, we also have the social network, which was an exciting thing in 2010. I mean, the social network was like one of the very first rewatchables, right? I I feel like Simmons is trying to push this point of like, this is a great movie. And I remember watching and being like, oh, that's fine. And then moving on with my day. And then they're just like, uh, they'll be like, this is the most rewatchable movie of the last decade or whatever. And I'm like, is it? Eisenberg? Zuckerberg? What are we doing here? I think you made it sound as if those were two separate stars. Aren't they? I mean... They are two separate people. They're two separate people, but like two separate stars of this movie. Uh, the What has happened to both Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook as a platform in the last... I don't want to say decade, because... It hasn't been that long, but in the last three years or so, I feel like it's impossible. The Social Network is 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 an interesting movie. Always, the amount that you care about it really is tied to the amount that Facebook is a platform that you're paying attention to, right? Like, imagine you were watching a movie about the making of MySpace. It's absurd, right? And like 
but what is the difference between Facebook and MySpace? That one still exists. I mean, I guess so. Does it though? Like as somebody who pays a lot of attention to what's happening in social media or whatever, I always felt like <clears throat> it was like, okay, nobody gives a shit about Facebook. Nobody under the age of 40 gives a shit about Facebook anymore. Right. I literally had a conversation today with an artist who was just like, I can't remember the last time I was on Facebook. It's been like five years. And he's like, I really care about Instagram. And it's like, okay, like as long as Instagram, is yeah, you, th- know who, you know who owns Instagram, right? L- listen to what I'm saying though. As long right. as Instagram's thriving, you're like, okay, you can trace it back to the same place. But even now in this quarantine, I feel like the amount of attention that I see being paid to Instagram vis-a-vis TikTok is like, it is, it is dwindling and dwindling. And it's like, Mark Zuckerberg better open up those pocketbooks and start looking for some acquisitions here to China. Cause like, <clears throat> if you don't have Facebook and if Instagram doesn't matter, all of a sudden, like the amount that Mark Zuckerberg is a person, the social network is a film, all of these things matter becomes less and less and less. And like you can see it every day that this is the nature of social media. It doesn't but continue. Even if Facebook dies out as a social media platform, it will still have had a much greater long-term lasting impact than MySpace had. Like it's still going to be. You can't tell the story of the two thousands in the United States without telling the story of Facebook. Do you? Okay. How about this though? Long-term, do you think we will look back on Facebook as the I feel like there's a chance that we're like look back on MySpace more fondly because it pioneered the platform. Because the my, reason we look back on MySpace more fondly is because we aren't fucking on MySpace anymore. Well, I've got like some you, news if for you were you. on there we're every day and having to update Facebook your top anymore. I don't. I'm not logged into Facebook on my phone. I literally do not remember the last time I scrolled through Facebook. Do you? But Facebook still exists as an entity for you to be annoyed by it. MySpace, you can't be annoyed by because it doesn't exist as an entity. Like you're, you're saying these you're, words you're in 2020. Say these words to me in 2025. Okay, I think the Facebook will still exist in 2025. I'll take that bet. If you want to put it, 20 bucks it, on it, <laughs> sure, fine, fuck it. Deal. <laughs> I I think it will exist in 2025. I'm willing to bet on it because why not? But also. Because we're pushing two hours here. I, I don't think. Look, we're just trying to entertain our fans in Ireland. I, I don't think. He said an hour and a half. He said nothing about two hours. <laughs> he stops listening after 90 minutes. I, I don't think it would be shocking to me. If you had a crystal ball and you're like, in 2025, Facebook doesn't exist, I wouldn't be like, whoa. Right? I would be more shocked if I mean, Twitter first off, Twitter. Let's see if exist. any of us exist in 2025. Twitter to me feels like a longer lasting platform than almost any social media. Yeah, but Twitter doesn't make any money. It doesn't matter. It's not going to go away. Just not making money isn't enough of a reason for it not to exist. Or it's I I can see a specific value add to what Twitter does as far as social social networks, media, whatever goes that I don't see in Facebook and I don't see in Instagram either. Instagram isn't a news source. Facebook isn't a news source. Twitter is a news source. I think Facebook is a news source. is probably a lot of the problem. It, t- but it, 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 it tells you when the protests are going to happen. 
<laughs> when the, when the op- open up Ohio protests are going to happen, that's what news it tells you. <laughs> Again, I think people using Facebook as a news source is a significant amount of the problem. But also, hot tub time machine. <clears throat> oh, my God. Just... Such a film. <laughs> look, when we have our hot tub time machine, if we had it in 2010 to look at 2020 and realize that Facebook didn't fucking matter at all, uh, we've got Cusack kind of making the film legitimate. Craig Robinson, burgeoning star. He'll get there if we have another three or four decades. That's all that I remember at Hot Tub Time Machine. But I remember it being a pretty fun movie. You, you don't remember Bob Cordry? Oh, some Cordry action. It was almost like, you remember Snakes on a Plane? I mean... Yes, but I don't because I've never seen Snakes on a Plane. I have seen Hot Tub Time Machine. Did we? We went together. To Hot, I I literally went to the theater twice to see Hot Tub Time Machine. I'm there not joking. Go. I think I went to Snakes on a Plane twice. Also, <clears throat> I'm just really into cinema. Um, but Hot Tub Time Machine was a movie where it's just like this should not be a movie, and then you go see it and you're like, wait, that was actually kind of good. <laughs> I, like, weirdly enjoyed myself watching that outside of, like, like Snakes on a Plane. You're just like, okay, this is a ridiculous thing that I'm watching. But Hot Tub Time Machine, I was like, oh, okay, this is actually kind of a good movie. I find it hard to explain, to think about the concept of Hot Tub Time Machine in hindsight. It's that you have a time machine, and it's a hot tub. <sighs> but that, that was popular. It's hard for me to understand. <laughs> was it popular? Have you ever seen Inception before? I have not seen Inception. Stupid movie. Um, <laughs> 2010 film. I love that you pulled out just Hot Tub Time Machine in the social network. <laughs> I mean, those are the two that seem relevant to us. <laughs> the year that... Okay, Despicable Me? Anything? No. Scott, Pil- Scott Pilgrim versus the Universe? Obviously not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> quote unquote obviously not uh the first iron man i think that began was that iron man one? Oh no iron man two okay uh so this was not phase one of the mcu well i think that's all there was oh 127 hours we had a we had a franco moment in 2010 uh <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know. It was in a lot of ways, 2010 was just kind of an undefined year. It's it's interesting how when we entered the new decade with 2000 2001, it felt like there was a very clear divide between the 90s and the 2000s. And I don't know if I would say that that has been true for the like 2000s into the 2010s. I would agree with that. I feel like there is a pretty big big. Uh... Uh, separation between 2019 and 2020 so far. Yeah, we haven't had a new Expendables, Expendables movie yet. <laughs> uh, anything else on 2010? I would say on that note. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>